0: You're listening to a podcast from River City Church of Jacksonville, Florida. For more audio and video podcasts, visit rccjacks.com. Okay, so yeah, last week David began uh, talking about this idea of the kingdom of God. It's a huge theme in Scripture. We could spend a whole year on it. We're going to spend five weeks. And, um, and David highlighted kind of where we're going with it. He talked about this, this key verse that Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. And that's kind of like all, these, all these talks this, this month, these five, five talks or so, are dealing with the kingdom of God in and through us. God, in his sovereignty, doesn't just choose to act outside of um, our involvement as a church. In fact, he calls us the bride. He calls us the bride of Jesus. So what he's interested in is not in taking over the world. God has all power and authority already. He's interested in partnership. He's interested in relationship. And so through his bride, the church, we advance God's kingdom, or we choose, or we choose not to. But that's the theme of these, these five weeks. And so today I'm talking about being salt and light in the places that we work or, or live or go to school. That's, the, that's, the, that's kind of the theme we're, we're kind of going with. That the kingdom of God is within us, and we, we respond. When we, when we pray for someone for healing, or when we listen to someone's problems, or when we feed a, ho- a person who needs food, or when we share the gospel of Jesus, we are advancing God's kingdom. We're choosing to step out and, and represent God as we pray or speak or uh, whatever it may be, um, support a missionary, you know, that's advancing in God's kingdom. So um, the, the verse I want to talk about is uh, first, it's from 1 Corinthians 5, it's this, it's this idea that we are ambassadors, 1 Corinthians five seventeen through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through through Christ and gives us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a huge, amazing passage. If anyone's in Christ or a new creation, you're no longer the same. Even though you may feel the same, your feelings are lying to you. Because you are a new creation. When you accept Christ, when you, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're, you're a new person. The Spirit has given you rebirth, and you're, you're a different person. And our feelings may not back that up. Our feelings may still feel, at times, we feel shame or fear or anger or lust. But those are lies. Those are lies. We are new creations. And so he's given to us this ministry of reconciliation, this message, this mission, this task of reconciling or representing God. So the idea of being an ambassador is an interesting one. If you've ever followed politics or, or government, Ambassadors are very key in the world of, of, of politics. And if you've ever, ever been to Washington, D.C., and you, you travel st- down, down certain streets, there's tons of embassies, foreign embassies, like there's a Chinese embassy or a Russian embassy or a British embassy or Spanish. And they all are buildings that are put on this piece of property. And that piece of property belongs to that country. It doesn't belong to the United States, even though it's right in Washington, D.C. It's actually a sovereign little piece of China or a sovereign little piece of Russia or... England. And those ambassadors run those areas. They have the same authority. They represent their government, their king, or their prime minister, or their president. And they stand in, the, in that place, and that's their little sphere of power, in a sense. And they, they talk back and forth with our government, our, our, our political leaders, and they represent their king. And that's what, that's what Jesus is saying, or God is saying through, or Jesus is saying in this, well, this is Paul, sorry, sorry, it's Paul. But the word of God is saying to us that we are ambassadors for Christ, that we have been given this little sphere or this little, this little area that God has said, you are in this school, you are in this job, you are in this neighborhood, and this is your little area that I've appointed this for you, this little, this little short time on, on earth, and I've given you authority to make a difference in that place, to bring my kingdom or not bring my kingdom in that little place that you work or that you live or in your family and it's a it 's a huge understanding that we are ambassadors that, that God just doesn 't make things happen arbitrarily or randomly that, that he uses us as his children as his partners to advance his kingdom in those places that we are, and some of us have been given, given greater spheres of existence greater spheres of power some of us have been given we're CEOs of companies. Some of us have been given huge families to take care of. You know, we have different responsibilities, but all of us are given this this job. And it's a difficult one, to be honest. I was, I was um, in seminary about 13 years ago, and I remember finishing seminary, and I had no idea what I was going to do. I thought I was going to be in ministry, and I felt like I wasn't ready. I had some issues, a lot of issues in my life, but I wasn't ready to be a full-time minister. So, I finished seminary, and I'd only been in ministry all the last, you know, seven or eight years. I'd been a youth minister, then I was in seminary, and I was doing missions, and I had to get a job. I mean, I had to get a real job. It was, uh, it was uh, crazy. So I, I didn't know what to do. I was like, what am I going to do? I have no, I have no real, no real um, desires. I, I had no real idea of what I could do, so I just started getting these random jobs in, in management or in retail or in sales. I worked at everything from... This is embarrassing. I worked at Radio Shack. Yeah, it's real. I really did. From Radio Shack through, I worked at CarMax and Verizon. I worked at a, a gym. I was a manager of a gym. I was a manager of a furniture store. I did all these random jobs, about you know about two years each, until I just found something else. But I felt like I was called to be in those places. But, the, but I realized quickly, because I never really had a, a, a job in the world, in a sense, that there are so many struggles and so many mitigating factors that we have to engage in these places that we live and that we work every day. And so in the sales world, for example, there were two main themes. It was greed and it was lust. It was greed or lust, same thing, lust for money, greed for money, or fear. That was the second thing, fear. So managers used fear, you're going to get fired, you meet commission, make a quota, you're going to get fired. That was the motivating way managers, most managers worked in, in the retail world, in my, in my, in my experience. Or they used, they used the greed, the greed aspect. It was, you're going to make this much money, and you're going to, if you meet this commission, you're going to get this or that. And so I quickly had to decide. I mean, I, it, was like, it was almost like if you didn't consciously think about these lies, you just became part of the system. You just became one of them. And you were, you were quickly drawn into the, the, the desire for the money or the, the avoidance of the fear from the managers every month. And it was a battle. I mean, it was every day I felt like I was in this, in this kind of melting pot of, of temptation. And there were times when I truly fell into just wanting more money, wanting, wanting to be the best salesperson, which is fine. That's fine. But it was like it became my identity. And so I, I realized I made a decision somewhere in the long, along the line that I'm not going to upsell people anymore. I'm not going to, like, tell customers they need this when they really don't need this. So, for example, when I was selling cell phones, it was back in 2005. So texting just started coming out on the, kind of coming out on the scene. Texting was huge. Like, it was, and, and no one really knew what it was. It was, it was just getting going. And, and data plans, you know, data, you know, like so internet surfing. And so they wanted us to sell anyone who came in texting. An 80-year-old woman, here, you need, you need unlimited texting, ma'am. You need unlimited texting because this is going to help you communicate with your great-granddaughter who's three years old. You know, it's like, and so... Every every customer they wanted you to upsell into these these data plans or texting plans or whatever it was. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it. So I just was over over and over again, kind of warned and reprimanded. But I wouldn't I would offer it, but I would never like push it because I felt like this is really not relevant to someone who's probably seventy at that time. But these days it's it's all it's all it's all good. But. so I just, I just decided I was just going to sell phones. I was just, just going to sell phones. So basically, I just sold cell phones. I, do, I was the best at it. I basically sold cell phones. So in, so in, the, in 2005, I sold 2,564 cell phones, more than any other employee in all of Virginia. So I sold more than anybody else, but I had the worst data plan closure than any other, any other salesperson. So I didn't make that much money. But I, the, the point was, I chose to be, be good at what I, what I was and, and within, the, within what I felt was a, a Christian ethic, in a sense. So this is what I want, want to get to. We're all in those places. We all struggle with temptation. We all struggle with the lies that come at us in our, in our places of work, the temptations to lead through fear or lead through lust or lead through greed or respond to those things. Every day we, 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 we leave church and we walk into a place that pretty much is a hostile environment, most likely, most likely, is a hostile environment, to the gospel, and so we have to decide: Will we be ambassadors for Christ? Will we reflect Christ, or will we simply reflect the world that's already coming at us? So, Matthew five thirteen is a great illustration when Jesus talks about this tangible thing. He says, "You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're also the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden." Neither do people light a lampstand and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So he takes two simple things. He's probably sitting in a house or a synagogue, and he simply takes two tangible, easy illustrations. He grabs a light or a candle, probably, and he grabs some salt, and he says, you are the salt of the earth, and you're the light of the world. And he says this simple thing, you're called to be a, 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 a changing factor in the place you are. So salt has, has a positive and negative. It has, it has a contrasting effect. So one, one effect of salt is obviously it adds flavor. And in, in today's world, that's mainly what we use it for. We, it adds flavor, right? So salt is, salt is like a, a spice, or it adds, it adds, it adds to the taste of whatever it is that's going on. So... Wherever you are, whatever job you are, or the, or the the family that you're in, the neighborhood that you're in, the school that you're in, you're called to add flavor. You're called to be the best employee, the best student, the best athlete, whatever it may be, you're called to be the best there, to represent Christ. That's that, that's the calling. And often Christians are the worst. Often we're the... No, I'm kidding. But, but I mean, often, oftentimes we, we complain or we argue or we... Get, get mad at our managers for being, for being too hard, or, and we talk behind their back. We agree with the spirit of the age. But we're called to be the most flavorful there. We're called to be the ones who people come and confide in, who look up to, who, who say he's so positive or she's so positive. And, and we're called to be different. So Jesus is saying, on a positive sense, you're called to add flavor. You're called to be alive because I've given you life. And on the converse side, is you're also called to be A preservative, like you prevent decay. Salt was used mainly to prevent decay because they didn't have refrigeration. So they took salt, they put it all over fish, they put it all over meat, they put it all over chicken, they would put it away for months, and it would prevent decay. So he's saying, you exist, you advance my kingdom by being salt and preventing decay. Because the reality is the world is going to decay. Your environment is going to decay, and I've put you there in the little sphere as an ambassador to prevent decay, because the world is going to do what the world does, right They're only doing what's according to their nature. We can't expect the world to be acting like they're saved when they're lost. And we can sit and blame Obama, we can blame Bush, we can blame Democrats, when really the person to blame is me, because we are the salt and the light, not them. Lost people. Act lost. Broken people act broken. Sinners sin. So when we see decay all around us in our culture and we go, oh, those, it really should be, oh, those Christians, because what do we do to stop it, or what do we do in our workplace, or how much prayer have I prayed for my, uh, my leaders, or whatever it may be, and that's a harsh statement to say, but, but we are either going to prevent decay or just agree with it. So what does it look like in a practical sense, like, like in, your, in your workplace? Like I was fired, this is, this is a good example, I was fired for not heckling a customer. I, I just couldn't go along with this, this um, protocol that we would make a phone call, ask for the sale, hang up, call back an hour later, ask for the sale, hang up. And this person kept saying, please don't call me, Brian. Please don't call me back. I don't want, I'm i not interested in buying whatever I was selling. I'm not going to say what it was. But it, but it was basically, I, I called back after the third time. I said, I'm not calling him again. Like I told the manager, I said, I'm not going to call him again. And she said, if you don't call him again, you're going to be fired. And so I said, okay. And she fired me right there on the sales floor in front of the whole sales team. And it, made, it, just, it was a huge Moment of just like embarrassment and rejection, right there. I was like, but I, but I said to myself, I'm not going to agree with this kind of manipulation and go along with it. Now that's an example of, of of trying to be trying to preserve decay, but you know, in a sense, being rejected for it. But but we're in places right now in our jobs, in our in our in our careers, where we can reflect Christ, where we can reflect Christ, and not have to agree with whatever the the prevailing idea is that's around us, of using fear or using anger or using Greed to motivate people, and so in that moment I was fired because I, I chose not to agree with that 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 way of, I guess, selling. And Jesus goes on to say, "You are the light of the world." And so, light again, it has a, has a contrast, right? If We turn the lights off right now, you would see you'd see darkness, and if I shine a flashlight, it'll show the way out. Correct? You'll see the way out. So, light light basically disposes of darkness and shows the way out. So we are called to show the way out. Our lives reflect being found. And we reflect to people, whether we listen, how we listen to them, how we pray for them, how we advise them, how we just basically spend time with them, we show them the way out. And it, could not, it may not be in you know, sharing Jesus in, in, in an explicit way. It just may be through loving them, listening to them. We show them the way out. But light also exposes what's in the darkness. So if you turn the lights off again, and I shine a light, I'm going to see what's hindering me from getting out. I'm going to see the chairs in the way, or the, the, whatever's in the way. I'm going to see the obstacles. So light doesn't just show the way out. It exposes what's in the darkness. So as Christians, again, we are called to love the lost. We're called to listen and care and, and pray. But we're also called to stand for something. And this may be hard to hear because we don't want to be offensive, we don't want to be obtrusive, we don't want to be arrogant or narrow-minded. And I'm not saying that we just protest and say, I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that, and we we fight for truth because we're supposed to. That's not what I'm saying. I'll give to to that in just a second. What I'm saying is we realize that if a company or if a a school or if a family operates in a way that is contrary to God's principles— they ultimately are going to die. If, they, if your friend or that marriage or that that coworker lives in a way that's contrary to God, they are ultimately going to die. So I'm going to, in love, listen to them. I'm going to say, dude, you're cheating on your wife. You're, you're, you're cheating on your wife right now and this is not what is best for your marriage. You've got to get over this and you've got to, you've got to, you've got to break this and forgive her or forgive him and all stuff like that. But the point is, we can choose to simply, I guess we can choose to simply listen and, and love unconditionally, which is great. We can also choose to share principles of life. So that's hard to say. But let me say this. Let me just give you an example. Two atheists who are married, right? They're married, they're atheists. And they're having, they're having problems in their marriage. They, they go to counseling or they go, they, they go to a friend who's, who's helping them through some things. And the, the person says, you've got to discover forgiveness, You've got to discover this principle of forgiveness. Now, the principle of forgiveness is not a Christian principle, but it's a, it's a, it's a principle that God is set in motion. And so two atheists who forgive each other and reconcile, that is, in a sense, God's truth being activated in their lives, even though they're not Christians yet. So a company that acts with integrity, a company that acts with, with principles and dignity of, of, of their, towards their employees, that company is going to be blessed, even though they may not be a Christian company. Does that make sense? Like, they may, they may reflect... Things of God, and they may be totally atheistic, but a company that reflects things of the world is ultimately going to be going to going to be ruined, or or, or, or whatever. And so we're called in that place to be lights. There were Christians in the banking crisis of 2008. There were Christians in those banks. They were executives. They were Christians, right? They were CEOs, CFOs, executives, and they were Christians. And they did nothing. While the, while the masses were being deceived, the masses were being manipulated, the Christians lined their, their wallets. And God had put them there to be in that place of influence, to be light and to be salt. And they didn't. They didn't. And you're in the place where you are to be light and to be salt. And you have the temptation not to be. Every day we have the, that temptation. The greatest example, not the greatest, one of the best examples of someone who lived this way was William Wilberforce. He, he lived... Two hundred years ago, in Great Britain, many have heard of him. He was a politician who came to realize that the slave trade was was a was a was a his calling to end. He, he wanted to end the slave trade. He felt like he was called to do so. That was that was his life calling, and he came to Christ at a young age. He was he was he was elected to Parliament when he was twenty one years old, and he came he came to Christ shortly after that, and he began to introduce these bills to the House of Commons to overthrow slave trade. And he was, he was almost entirely by himself doing this. He stood alone as a Christian amongst this tide of, of, of darkness, this industry of sla- of human trafficking. And it was a huge global industry. I mean, Great Britain was everywhere in the world. They, they had, the sun never set on the British Empire at, at that time. And, uh, and he stood almost alone, entirely against this industry. And It started in 1789. He he brought the first bill before the House of Commons. Then again in 91, 92, 93, 97, 98, 99, 04, and 05. 18 years. It was rejected 18 times. And over time, he continued to get more and more support. Over time, he continued to get more and more people behind him. 1807, the bill passed, and slave trade was now illegal. The parliament stood up at that time. They stood up, and they applauded him, and he sat there weeping because He'd, he'd worked for 18 years to get to this point. And what was amazing about him was even, his, even the people that were his enemies that were, were for the slave trade um, loved him because he had life. He had joy. He was a prankster. He was a humorous guy. People loved him that were his enemies, so to speak. And he talks about the importance in his life of the life of prayer. Because he says, if you are not... In public, what you are in private, you become an angry, bitter person. And that's what I want to hit on is, is if we just stand against something like a protesting Christian because we're, we're right and they're wrong or something something like that. We become bitter, we become angry, we become fearful, we become prideful. But when you spend time with the Lord in prayer, as, as he talks about, that he would spend time praying for those people that were his enemies, he got a download of God's heart for them. God's heart was poured out into him for those people that were so lost. And he was able to go on with such a, such a horrendous thing as dealing with the slave trade, with love in his heart. So we're, we don't just, you know, fight against our manager because he's, he's unfair. We pray for those around us at work or at school or our neighbors. And we ask God for his heart, his heart, for his mind, his thoughts for them, so that we can love them with real love. I mean, it's not hard to act like salt. We can, we can all just act like we're, we're right. That's not hard. What's hard is being salt, being love towards our neighbors, being love towards those around us at work that we totally disagree with. We listen to their stories, what they did over the weekend. We think, that's so disgusting. But yet, we have the choice to, to, to be salt, to ask for God's heart for them. And he said this, let me finish the story about him real fast. 25 years went on. So basically he overturned slave trade, but not slavery. So there were still millions of slaves. So now he had to fight against freeing the slaves, because they were still slaves. There was no more trading of slaves, no buying and selling. So for 25 more years, 25 more years, he he kept fighting for this issue of slavery. 1833, they finally make slavery illegal in, in every way, and all the slaves were given freedom without one shot being fired around the world. This is incredible. Not one shot was fired like like in America. Not one shot, not one death. This man stood in the the gap reconciling two parties and he stood there relentlessly in prayer for those people and they were set free and three days later he died. That was his life. It's an amazing story of a man who was salt and light, not just one or the other, not just an extreme example. He loved broken people and he said this, if to feel alive and aware of the sufferings of my fellow man is to be a fanatic, I'm, the one, of, I'm one of the most incurable fanatics ever permitted to be at large. And, he, and what he means by this is, if to be aware of the pain of the lost is to be a fanatic, then I'm a fanatic. Because what he's saying is, I can't ignore the brokenness in the lives around me. I can't ignore the slave trade in front of me, but also the brokenness of the slave traders. I'm a fanatic because I can't not see the real issue in their life. They're lost. They are literally lost, going to hell. Do you remember what it was was like to be lost? I mean, do you you remember that? Like those days that we didn't know Christ? Some of us still feel lost, you know, and we're saved, but we, we still feel lost. But the but but the, but that reality of being lost going to bed at night thinking this is all there is I mean you have friends who literally are lost or going to hell and it's going to be way worse than it is right now for them it's unimaginable unimaginable we don't talk about hell very much but it's unimaginable the pain the suffering that will, that will occur eternally in their lives and if we really thought that if we if I really believed in the reality of of what hell looked like, I'd be on the streets right now saying, please turn. Please turn. He loves you so much. He cares for you. He died for you. And, what, and he's saying, I'm a fanatic, so I can't ignore the reality of those lost people. Because they go to bed and they say, this is all there is. If this relationship doesn't work out, I've got nothing. This job doesn't work out, I've got nothing. Do you remember those, remember those days Like when you just thought, this is all there is? Like, if, I, if, I don't, if, this, if, if she breaks up with me, I've got nothing. Or if I lose this job, I've got nothing. That's what they live every day. That's what lostness is like every day. They're clinging to debris on the top of the water while they're drowning. Just whatever they can grab. So the contrast is, is huge. And I believe that, that Wilbur Forrest is, is a great example of what it looks like to be salt and light. He says, again, of all things, guard against neglecting God in the secret place of prayer. That was the core of his whole life, that what he did in private overflowed in public, that he spent time with the Lord, he asked for God's heart for the lost, and he prayed, and God downloaded his feelings, his affections, his thoughts, and that overflowed into his life and ministry. It's all about intimacy, still, even as I talk about this kind of social aspect or or, or whatever, it's all about intimacy. We behold Jesus, and as we, we behold him, we become like him. We behold and we become, and so we go into the world as lovers and not as protesters. We go into the world as lovers, not as angry Christians who are against this or that. What has God called you to? How has God called you to advance His kingdom in your life, in your job, in your family, in your neighborhood? It is so hard, it is so challenging. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be offensive. We don't want to be um, ostracized. But the Lord has placed you in your place of work, in your family, in your school, in whatever it may be. He's placed you there to be salt and light. He's placed you there to make his kingdom the kingdom that's here now. So that, that, that your friends could experience the love of the Father through you. So let's stand. And just, uh, just wait, wait on the Lord.